case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love which you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. When we think about the context of Hebrews 6, 9 through 12, we have to remember all the way back to Hebrews chapter 1. Obviously, in chapters 1 and 2, very strongly, and chapter 3, very strongly, the writer of Hebrews is trying to present to the reader and to the hearer this idea of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He will carry that on all the way through to the end of the book. The supremacy of Jesus Christ over all things. And uh, that's the focus. At the same time that this vast theological treatise is given, helping people to understand not just the truth that he is greater and supreme over all things and everyone, but also the depth of, of, of teaching in the book about who Jesus is is absolutely important to see. In the midst of that, scattered throughout the book, you will find at the same time that you have the theological teaching, you'll have these exhortations that come up. We just finished one of them in, chapters one, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. It's continuing here in 9 through 12. We've seen them earlier. In light of who Jesus is, the warning is not to have a hard heart. The warning is later on not to have a cold heart. The warning in the midst of all that is to also be careful that you watch yourself today while it's still today. The warning is also that you watch each other today while it's still today. So it's not just a private thing, but it's a corporate thing as well. And so the warning early on is, as we talked about last week, be careful so that and be careful if, because it's common to have that for those problems. In the beginning of chapter 6, we saw a shift, as we pointed out last week. It, um, he said, he, uh, I'm sorry, cha- end of chapter uh, 5, he says uh, um, in verse 11, since you have become dull of hearing, it changes from, from a possibility to almost an all-inclusive statement. You have become dull of hearing. And then from there, we went into chapter 6 last week, verses 1 through 8, where the warning is very strong what happens if you're dull of hearing. If you did, weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to listen to that. I don't want to rehash all the way through verses 1 through 8 again. But a very, very strong warning. It's very stark from chapter 5, verse 11, all the way through uh, chapter 6, verse 8. This incredibly stark exhortation and warning to the hearer, to the reader, to watch out because it's easy to be lulled into the wrong direction. And the consequences for being wrong is eternal. That's what we saw last week. Consequence for being wrong is eternal. And by the way, the being wrong is not the idea that Jesus Christ isn't God. The idea is to trivialize or to marginalize Jesus Christ, to treat him casually and what he's accomplished casually uh, instead of recognizing its all-encompassing, his all-encompassing value. <coughs> which brings us to verse 9 of our text this morning, which seems to be contradictory to verses, or chapter 5, verse 11 through 6, 8 a little bit. Notice it again, verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. You take that back to 5, 11, it seems a little bit confusing. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. 
Again, verse 9 of chapter 6, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that, that belong to salvation. So he says in verse 11 of chapter 5, you're dull of hearing. In chapter 6, it, verse 9, it seems like he's saying, yeah, we spoke this way, but it really doesn't apply to you. Isn't that what it sounds like? And that's not what he's saying. He's not negating chapter 5, verse 11. It's important we get that. Although it, in first blush, in first read, it seems to say that. He, what he's saying is, though we speak this way, and the idea is we speak so strongly, we speak so harshly, we speak so aggressively, we speak so exhortatively, we speak so warningly. Yet in your case, beloved, we feel, better, we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation. What he's talking about in verse 9 is this. It's almost like he's saying, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, when he says we feel sure of better things, it's almost like he's saying we have hopes of better things. Yet in your case, beloved, we know you. We've fellowshiped with you. We've communicated with you. We've eaten dinner with you. So we have better hopes or higher hopes regarding you with regard to this issue. We feel like there is hope is the idea. Does that make sense? Otherwise, it would be incoherent with the entirety of the book. He's not saying in verse 9, though we speak this way, yet in your case, beloved, we know differently. That's not what he's saying. Very important we recognize that. He's saying, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. What is he meaning? Well, a couple things. Number one, the writer of Hebrews is absolutely convinced of something. And that is, if I may quote Paul, he's absolutely convinced that if God began the good work in these people, what? He will bring it to completion. If he's begun the good work, he will bring it to completion. There's no question in this writer's mind under the direction of the Holy Spirit that if he's begun the work, he will bring it to completion. Now, for the writer of Hebrews, he is somewhat confident. I'm using those terms very specifically. He's somewhat confident that the recipients of this letter have, by the power of the Holy Spirit, seen that beginning in them. But, we cannot negate the previous warning of 5.11. That the writer of Hebrews is looking at these people that he knows, that he's ministered to, that he's interacted with. We cannot negate this idea that the writer is looking at them saying, but I see some serious, serious problems. Those two have to be brought together. Otherwise, the warnings of chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 6 would be meaningless. But they are very clearly meaningful. Be careful because it's really easy to have a hard heart. Be after it today while it's still today so that you don't get a cold heart. And by the way, you're all a dull of hearing, he says. You've all become dull of hearing. I'm trying to communicate these things to you, but I keep on having to go back to the same thing over and over and over again. The basics of Christianity, which is what he said in 5.11 through the end of, of chapter 5. He's saying, in chapter 5, he's saying, these things should not be. At the same time, verse 9, I 
find myself, the writer of Hebrews saying, I find myself still thinking better things in your case, beloved. Because I've seen the evidence of the Spirit at work in your life. I've seen transformation take place. I've seen you grow and change. That doesn't change the matter for today. Because yesterday's yesterday, and today's today, and tomorrow's tomorrow. And Christianity is not just a Christianity of yesterday, correct? Christianity is Christianity of today and tomorrow. And if the Spirit began, He will continue. And so, at the same time that I give this incredibly stark warning, the writer of Hebrews says, this incredibly scary caution, exhortation that ought to cause the reader to quake. He says, I want you to know something. At the same time I say that, without negating that, I want you to understand I do feel hope of better things. What type of things? Well, in chapter 6, verse 9, he says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. What kind of things? Not the things that we've warned about. Cold hearts, war, uh, uh, hard hearts, uh, dull hearing. Even though right now these things are evident. We continue to feel sure of better things. What type of things? Things, verse 9, that belong to salvation. The writer of Hebrews says to the, the recipients of this letter, he says to them, I feel sure of better things, things that pertain to salvation. What type of things are things that pertain to salvation? Very important question. And if we read in the, in the text, we're going to find out a few of them, but it's in the context we have to find the greatest thing. Because the context is, is assumed by the writer of Hebrews before we get into the immediate statement that come after, the statements that come after. So he says, I feel sure of some greater thing, of these greater things. What greater things? The things that pertain to salvation. In context, what he's talking about, I still remain convinced that you, recipients of the book of Hebrews, of this letter, this all-important letter, will once again be reminded and be drawn back to, inexorably be drawn back to this one important thing that pertains to salvation. And that is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That more than anything else, if the Holy Spirit has begun the good work in you, the writer says, that there will be something that the Spirit will do in your life to once again Soften your, your hard heart that he will once again warm your cold heart. That he will once again cause your ears that have become dull of hearing that they will once again become sharp again. That they will hear what they used to hear. That they will feel the heat of what they used to feel. That is your heart. 
that the heart will be soft again, although now it's hard. The things pertaining to salvation are the things of Jesus. That, that once again, Jesus for you, the writer of Hebrews is saying, that once again, for you, the things pertaining to salvation is that you will find Christ all in all. That you will find Christ supreme. That you will once again find that your mind can't seem to exit. There's no exit point off of Jesus. There's only Jesus at every exit point. That no longer will you find that as you live life, that Jesus will be compartmentalized over here, but not here, and here, and here, and here, but that you will find Jesus all in all because He is, what? Supreme. He is of ultimate value. That nothing else even shades Him a little bit. That you will more and more find that He is the, the light that defeats all false lights. The other day I was, I was comparing flashlights. I'm, okay, I'm kind of weird. I really like flashlights. <laughs> Don't I, hon? I love flashlights. Always have. I can never have enough flashlights. In my bedroom, I probably have like nine of them. Isn't that weird? That's really weird. I mean, it's really, really weird. The more I think about it, I, I, I see an ad for a flashlight. I'm reading it. I'm like, what's so cool about this flashlight? I think flashlights are amazing. I got all sorts of them. I've got flashlights for running. I got flashlights for camping. I got flashlights that, that power up because you turn them. You know, they don't even need a battery. And I got all sorts of flashlights. I got solar power flashlights. I got them all. It's like they're everywhere. I've been in my truck. I've got, I've got like four flashlights. Isn't that weird, Linda? Yeah, it's really weird. <laughs> you want one? You want one? <laughs> I forgot all about that one. That's cool, too. I use that a lot. Um, but the other day I was in my office. It was nighttime. And out where our house is, it's really dark at night. There's just n almost no ambient light outside at all. And so when the lights are off in the room, there's no light coming through the window. It's pitch black. So I was just having a ball. Because in my office, I've got like four or five flashlights at least. And, and so I was comparing flashlights. Imagine. I know. So I'm shining them against the wall. And, you know, it's really interesting. They're really bright when you shine them on a white wall. But when you shine them on a dark part of the wall, they're not near as bright. It's kind of interesting. To me. Anyway, I started comparing flashlights. You know the best way to compare flashlights is? You shine one on the wall and then you shine the other one in the exact same spot. Then you pull one away and you just go back and forth and see which one's brighter, right? And it's interesting because sometimes a flashlight, they'll advertise that this one is 600 lumens and this one's 300 lumens. And yet when you compare them in real time, the 300 lumen one will be brighter than the 600 lumen one. For a variety of reasons, the lens and the reflector and maybe the age of the battery and any number of other things. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that I have this one flashlight that out of all the rest of the flashlights, 
it is easily the brightest. And when I shine it against the wall and shine another light against the wall, I can't see the other lights. I just can't. It's wiped out by the first light. If I take the second one away and just get my eyes focused on the second one and then, again, bring back the, the brightest one, I can't see the lesser one because the brightest one just overwhelms it. It's gone. Now, most of my flashlights, I can do that. I can still see the other one, but the one I can't. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's talking about. You know, there's all sorts of, if I use the term, there's all sorts of flashlights in our life, isn't there? To use the illustration, there's all sorts of flashlights in your life. You may have kids. You may have grandkids. I don't think there's anybody who has great-grandkids, are there? I don't think so. Not yet. You have a job. You have investments. You have friends. You have recreation. You have property, you have history, you have all sorts of things. Every one of us does. The point he's trying to make is it's as, it's a, it's as if they're all flashlights. But one flashlight overwhelms them all. And what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that I have high hopes that you will once again recognize the most beautiful of flashlights. The one that just kind of wipes out all the rest of them. It doesn't mean the rest of them aren't there. It doesn't mean that they don't serve a purpose. Right? When they serve a purpose, whether it's recreation or work or investments or or friends, or family. They all serve a purpose, right? They all serve a function. And some of them are really good functions, and some are really bad functions. Not bad as in moral, but bad as in painful. Right? But they all serve a function. But the, the writer of Hebrews is trying to say is, I have high hopes for you, recipient of the letter of Hebrews, that you will once again find the most powerful flashlight to be the one that matters. one that overwhelms them all. The one that does what only the one can do. And so that you see everything in light of the one. That is ultimately what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here when he says, though we speak this way about you, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. In the great context of Hebrews, it is that you find not just Jesus to be supreme, which the argument is, but that the result of that would be true. That you find yourself drawn to the supreme one. You find yourself by the power of the Holy Spirit inexorably desiring more of the supreme one. So that you say, no matter what, let good, goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. This body they may kill, his truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. I just 
the one who is supreme. Because what value is all the lesser things if the only thing that matters is the greatest thing? Because for the writer of Hebrews, all the lesser things are incoherent without the greater thing. Because if the greater thing is not in the position of the greater thing, the greatest thing, then everything else has no coherence. Because it's being viewed at from a cold heart or a hard heart. Or it's being listened to from dull ears. So ultimately, again, what the, what the Hebrew writer, or the writer of Hebrews is saying is that He feels sure of the things that belong to salvation, even though these people who have received this letter at this point in time are dull, spiritually. Even though at this point in time, the people that are the recipients of this letter are hard of hearing, hard of heart, cold of heart. He feels sure. Not based upon them, by the way, right? Not based upon those people but based upon the promise of God. Because God has promised to work. Oh, we are prone to wander, yes. But God will not be thwarted. He is on the march. The Holy Spirit will not be thwarted because he's on the march. The Godhead is on the march. And it's a victory march. That's the view of the writer of Hebrews. It's a victory march. The victory is sure. And if we're his children... This is the thing that he's confident in. Is that it will evidence itself, the Spirit will evidence himself in us so that we will no longer have dull hearing, hard hearts, cold hearts. Do you find yourself with a cold heart today? Do you find yourself with, with, with a hard heart towards Jesus? Other things move you, he doesn't. Other things capture your heart. He doesn't. Do you find that to be the case? I want to tell you something. I'm confident of this. That if he begun the good work in you, he's going to continue to perfect it. I'm confident of that. We've all been there. Hard heart, cold heart, dull hearing. We've all been there. Some of us are hit there right now. I'm confident of something. If we're his, you know what's going to happen? Heart's going to be warmed. Heart's going to be softened. Ears are beginning to hear once again. Oh, for the day, huh? Today's the day. That's the call here, to remember Jesus, to fellowship with Jesus. Can I just ask you a quick question? For those of you who were here last week, if you weren't, weren't here last week, you are here the week before, or whenever it was last time you are here, we talk about Jesus a lot here. It's a good thing. Can I just ask you real quick, if you are here last week, your heart's warm this week about Jesus? <coughs> In light of the message last week, were your hearts warmed? Were your hearts softened toward Jesus this last week? If you're here last week, not because of the power of the speaker, but because of the power of the Spirit, 
your ears get tuned into Jesus a little bit more this last week? Did you find yourself, let's get a little more practical, did you find yourself by the power of the Spirit being drawn to taste again and see that he's good? Did you find this week because of, of the Spirit at work in your life that you just needed more of Jesus? You just needed more of the one who satisfies. That happened? Not, you know what that means? It means we're still there, right? Hard heart, cold heart, dull of hearing. I'm confident that the Spirit's going to work. I'm confident of that. Because he's on the mark, and he's at work. Moving on into verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name in serving, in serving the saints as you still do. So the people that are receiving this letter, even though they're described as dull of heart or dull of ears and hard-hearted in, in some cases or cold-hearted in some cases, he says in verse 10, For God is not unjust to, as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in, the serving, in serving the saints as, you, saints as you do, as you still do. So these people that are recipients of this letter have been what? They've been involved. They've been ministering, haven't they? Pretty clear in the text. And not only have they been in the past, but it says that they what? They still do. Which, by the way, brings a little more clarity. Ask yourself, I just want to add a little little piece of the equation here to ask yourself a question we just talked about have you found yourself coming back to jesus by the power of the spirit desiring more of the one who satisfies the supreme one if not we find ourselves to be cold hard and dull of hearing still so let me add to the equation these people were dull of hearing, cold, hard-hearted, and yet at some level, even though they're, they're in that serious condition, there's still something going on, isn't there? There's still some loving of the saints and caring for one another. Now, we, we must not miss the point. This is not a work salvation thing. Remember, the context is not mentioned here because the context is assumed. That's the big picture. And in light of the big picture, the small picture, verse 10, is happening. It's not that, that the works are saving you. It's when I fellowship with Jesus and hang out with Jesus and learn of Jesus and taste of Jesus and discover that he's good and discover his supremacy and his value and his beauty and all the rest, it causes me to what? Verse 10, right? It caused me to love, care for, minister to. It drives me to that. It's the natural result, right? It's called bearing fruit, right? It's called bearing fruit. So we must not get, get it out of order and say that somehow verse 10 is the sum total of verse 9, the things pertaining to salvation. It most certainly is not. Context big. This is small, not insignificant small, but it's secondary. It's evidence of the big. 
So here's what I want to ask. Not that we have to say that if we're, that we're work, again, it's not work salvation, but at the same time, we must ask ourselves a really important question in light of the previous question. Do I find myself being drawn by the power of the Holy Spirit to Jesus in greater and greater ways? Then I need to ask myself, is that changing me? That's the point, isn't it? Is that changing me so that I find myself what? Verse 10. Serving and loving, right? Serving and loving. Am I finding myself drawn to loving others and serving others? And by the way, that idea of loving and serving isn't primarily, if I use the term because we used to do this all the time here, and we still do it informally, but we used to do it formally. It's not joy meals. No offense. I don't mean to offense by that. There's nothing wrong with joy meals. But you get the point. It's, it's not some sort of, of that type of thing. It's more, I would argue, primarily loving and serving what? People with regard to the great context, Jesus. Now, those other things are important, right? But, but they're secondary importance, aren't they? You know, I, I, I say this all the time to people. Who cares? Who cares, if I just use this as an example, if Andrew has a broken leg and Laura's away on some sort of trip, and so Andrew's all alone, it's a compound fracture, who really cares if I come over, I hear about it, and I come over and I, I help him, I get him to the hospital, I feed him meals, I tuck him in bed, help him to the bathroom, and whatever else he needs. Who cares if I don't help, help him love Jesus more ultimately? I mean, societally it's good, right? It's good for Andrew, right? He's able to go to the bathroom. He's able to eat. He's able to get to the doctor. That's good for Andrew, right? That's good. Horizontally, But ultimately, what good is that? If Jesus, if, if, if all things are from him, through him, to him, to him be glory forever, amen. If he is supreme. Is it supreme, just to use this illustration, is it in any way supreme that Andrew's leg gets healed? Is that supreme? No, because even if his leg is healed, guess what's going to happen? He's going to die. I mean, he is temporal, correct? Everybody agree? Physically, Andrew's temporal. This physical body is temporal, isn't it? may not feel like it right now. If you had a compound fracture, it would feel temporal. So it, it's good. But it has nothing to do with eternity. Does it? Does that have anything to do with eternity? No, absolutely nothing to do with eternity. Now, some people would say, well, yeah, but, but Steve, I'm, I'm living out Christ before him, right? No, it's not about living out. It's about Christ.
So the question I guess I'm trying to drive towards on, the, on this is, can I just ask you a quick question? Self-evaluation. Is my love for Jesus finding itself to impel me to love people toward Jesus? Is it causing me to love people toward Jesus? I'm not being driven by the law. I'm being driven by love. The love of Christ is controlling me to love Andrew. Yeah, I'm going to love him by taking him to the hospital and, and helping him out of bed and giving him meals and trying to make him comfortable and all the rest. I've been thinking about this a lot this week because, because what happened to my mom last Sunday evening. If you didn't know, my mom broke two fingers and right hand in her thumb um, when she fell. It was Jim's fault. <laughs> it's Lois's fault. <laughs> It wasn't Jim's fault. I'm just joking. If anybody's fault, it's probably mine. Um, <coughs> and I've been trying to love my mom. And I doing what I can for her and trying to watch out for her and trying to encourage her and all the rest. But I've been thinking about it a lot this week. Steve, what difference does it make if I, if I help with these things but I don't point her to Jesus? Is the healing of her two fingers and her thumb supreme or isn't it? Well, no, because she's still going to die. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Make her comfortable and help her and watch out and protect her and provide for her. It's a good thing, but there's only one thing of supremacy. And that is that my mom sees Jesus and knows and loves Jesus more, even in her diminished state. It doesn't matter, ultimately. <coughs> now in this text, verse 10 again, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints, and you still do. Now it sounds like things are going well for him, verse 10, isn't it? So again, it sounds incoherent, verse 9, verse 10, Chapter uh, 5, verse 11. Sounds like it's not working, right? Well, in just a second, I think we're going to be able to bring a lot of coherence to that. <clears throat> he goes on in verse 11. says, We desire each of you to show the same earnestness and to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So there's an implication in verse 12 that there is a, although this is still happening, there's a sluggishness about it. Do you hear that? It's still going on. The question for us is, is, is it even happening? That's a real important question. But even if it is happening, is there a sluggishness about it? If there's a sluggishness, it's not that I've got to do better. It's that I've missed the, the primary thing, right? The contextual thing about the supremacy of Jesus. Because if I got the supremacy of Jesus and I valued the supremacy of Jesus and I reveled in the supremacy of Jesus, the result is going to be that I'm going to love and glorify him and bear fruit. But it's seemingly in verse 10, it seems like, well, so you may not be sluggish, implication being, you are. It's going on, but it's really sluggish. And the reason why it's sluggish is because you forgot about Jesus, right? So, is there any more evidence in this, in this book that that is the case? Yes, there is. Chapter 10. If you flip over to chapter 10. Verse 
The same writer, the writer of Hebrews, in chapter 10, starting in verse 32, says this. Again, starting in verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who so, those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better, a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of an endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet in a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, what? My soul has no pleasure in him. That's another way of saying what he said earlier in chapter 6 and, and chapter 2 and chapter 3. There's a repetition all the way through the book. And as a matter of fact, I would argue verses 32 through 38 is a repetition of what we're seeing in chapter 6. So there was a point in time, we're not going to exposit chapter 10 very much today because we'll get there when we get there. But there was a point in time in the Hebrews' lives, the recipients of this letter's lives, where they were what? They were evidently caught up with Jesus. There was a time in these people's lives when they were enthralled with the Supreme One. Now, maybe they have more knowledge of Him now than they did then, but there was a time when they were enthralled with the Supreme One, Jesus Christ. And it caused them to be willing to experience all sorts of difficulties. They were willing to be mocked and ridiculed for Jesus. They were willing to be thrown in prison for Jesus. They were willing to accept, accept how? Joyfully. Wrap your brain around that one. They are willing to joyfully receive the plundering of their possessions. Why? Why? Because they knew they had a greater and what? What? Abiding or lasting possession. And what is the greater and abiding possession or lasting possession? And don't say heaven. It's Jesus himself in the context of Hebrews. They knew that they had a possession that was better and abiding that would never be plundered. It's Jesus. And they found him supreme. Today, the average Christian, if the stock market goes down one day, people freak out. That's not even plundering. That's just the ebb and flow of the stock market. People get upset. Christians get upset. It's like, wait a second. You remember the day when you accepted joyfully the plundering of your possession because your focus was on some other possession? There is this possession that belongs to me, but this is my real possession. They understood the inheritance they had. They understood the beauty of the inheritance they had. And seemingly what the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 is saying is, what happened? They've lost perspective. They've lost perspective. 
what perspective? They've lost the perspective of the greater and lasting possession. Or, if I may use the illustration, they've got this one great flashlight, and it's bright. And they're dinking around with a match. Or worse yet, <laughs> you know, they're dinking around with a dead battery. They've lost track. They've got a hard heart. They've got a cold heart. They become dull of hearing. They need to be reminded of the basics again and again and again. And so what does the writer of Hebrews say, going back to chapter 6? And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness. What earnestness? To have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish, but Im imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now it's interesting what he does here. First of all, in verse 11. <clears throat> and we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Could I just ask you a quick question? Just verse 11. <clears throat> assurance is good, isn't it? Isn't it? Assurance of hope is really good, isn't it? Stephanie, you work in investment for uh, investment world. If someone could have an assurance of gain, that'd make them pretty happy, wouldn't it? Yeah. Make them pretty happy. Assurance is a good thing. In this case, he talks about assurance of hope. Referring to, of course, Christ's promises. God's promises to us. And he says here in verse 11, again, and we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Notice the earnestness is not to love and serve people, is it? The earnestness is to have what? The assurance of hope. And what he's saying is here, the earnestness, it, it, this is the idea, to, it, we, we, we desire that you all show the same earnestness to have the assurance of hope. Well, where do we find assurance of hope? Again, the Sunday school answer is right. In Christ. The assurance of hope is in Christ. It's not in how well you do. What did Paul say about that? It's not up to the one who wills or works, Right? But it, it's up to the one who shows mercy. And so the idea here, the writer of Hebrews is saying, is we desire for you to show this amazing earnestness to gain the assurance of hope that you only find in the one who is supreme. That, In other words, that you will have an earnestness to pursue and know and glory in and be satisfied by Jesus. Because he is your assurance of hope. which then causes us all to say what? A really simple question. And the simple question is this. Steve, I hear you. But what does that look like? Right? What does that look like? I'm not sure I've ever seen that, Steve. I don't even know what that looks like. Because for too long... 
in our non-persecuted church world, let's be honest, for too long we presented a Christianity that doesn't have Christ as supreme. And we're so far down the path. It's really hard to even see it anymore, isn't it, sometimes? It's really hard to even see it and comprehend it. And when was the last time anybody really got their possessions plundered? When was the last time any of us were thrown in prison for Jesus? When was the last time any of us were ever seriously mocked and ridiculed and rejected for Jesus? It's hard to even picture what he's talking about, isn't it? It is for me. It's hard to even picture what he's talking about. Which, by the way, shows perhaps that we have cold, hard hearts, dull hearing. You know, God in his mercy gives us the answers to that question. <coughs> he says in verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. What's he talking about? Because I know when we read this, even in he the Hebrews day, if you have a hard heart, a cold heart, <coughs> or, or, or dull hearing and the Spirit's working in your life, and you start asking yourself that question, they would have. Because if if the church is predominantly that in the, in the this day, that day, they would ask the same question. What does that look like? Right? And what does the writer of Hebrews do? Well, <coughs> in case you're wondering who you're supposed to imitate, who are these people who through faith and patience inherit the promises? He graciously gives us Hebrews chapter 11. That's what he does. In a few short chapters, he gives us Hebrews chapter 11. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to just close the message tonight, or today, this morning, and just read to you Hebrews chapter 11. And with that, we will close. So if you take your Bibles and turn over to Hebrews 11, <coughs> as we read through Hebrews chapter 11, I want to remind you of something. It's easy to hear the works that are being talked about in Hebrews chapter 11, but it's really important that you don't do that. As we walk through the cemetery and read the gravestones and contemplate the gravestones, it's really important that we remember the big context of these gravestones is Jesus Christ's supremacy. That any works we see in the text are because they see the supremacy of Christ. And there are occasions in the chapter where it's going to bubble right to the surface. You can't miss it, especially with Moses. <coughs> but let, let's just listen. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, I want to remind you of something. He didn't say by works. He said by faith, even though he'll talk a lot about works. It's by faith in Christ. Unless you think, well, but Steve, these people are all Old Testament people. Faith in Christ? Yes, the Messiah was promised. Christ was promised. So, all that to be said, I will just read now. <clears throat> For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith. Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, 
through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gift. And through his faith, though he died, <coughs> he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not, so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed the ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand on, by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things, things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac, invoking future blessings on Jacob and Esau, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, <clears throat> when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they, they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. 
by faith Ab or Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refused to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in sheaves of skin, um, skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Breathtaking, isn't it? Isn't it? Breathtaking. The chapter 11 of Hebrews shows us what it looks like not to be sluggish with regard to Jesus. Chapter 11 shows us not what it looks like to work hard. Chapter 11 looks, it shows us what it looks like to pursue Jesus, to find Jesus supreme of supreme value, of supreme worth. It shows us what happens when someone does. When someone by the power of the Spirit finds Jesus, who he really is. So the question before us today, as it has been, <coughs> is simply this. Are we dull of hearing? Are we play, playing around with little teeny flashlights and not the supreme one? Are we finding value in the things that are ultimately by themselves not valuable at all? Are we finding value in things that moth, corrupt, thieves break through and steal? Are we finding supreme, supreme value in the things of the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ himself? If you find yourself cold, hard, if you look back on, on, on your story <coughs> and you find your story to be one of hard and cold and dull of hearing, can I just encourage you with something? There are many that's gone on the path before you. <laughs> Many have been down the path of Christianity before you as evidenced in the book of Hebrews who have struggled with this exact same thing. And yet I'm confident of something and that is God is bigger than all of that. Christ is bigger. The Spirit is more powerful than all of that. And if you are truly saved, I am confident of this very thing. 
And that is, if God began the work, he will continue to If I could just present this to you, I am confident of this. If the, if the Spirit has begun this thing, you know what's going to happen? The Spirit will say, this is enough. At some point, he's going to say, this is enough. He's going to draw you back. And he's going to bring you back to repentance. Because we've given our hearts away to all the wrong things. So the call is back to repentance. The call is back to worship. The call is back to Jesus. Fellowshipping with the one who is supreme, who loves you so much. So let's together, let's repent, shall we? Because the Spirit's working in your heart. Let's worship. Let's pray. Lord, help us. <coughs> because we do find ourselves not unlike the people of the recipients of the book of Hebrews. We find ourselves told. We find ourselves moved by other things. We find ourselves enthralled with signposts and not what the sign is pointing toward. We find ourselves enthralled with and moved by and controlled by lesser things. And so, Lord, I ask that you work in our lives. Bring us to repentance. Change our hearts. Warm our hearts. Soften our hearts. Sharpen our ears. That we would hear you. That we would know you. And be satisfied. In your name I pray. Amen. <coughs>